I mean that their hair, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. But when, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are, you, are, you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you today for allowing us to be here with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, dear Lord. May we see today, Lord, that we may see change hearts, dear Lord, and attitudes toward your, your son, dear Lord. We just pray for our pastor and pastors around this world, dear Lord, that they may preach your word without error, with love and humility. In your son's name, amen. You may be seated. Some of you who may have been out of town for the weekend are thinking, I thought we were in Colossians. And you are mostly correct, but we took a quick, we're going to take a quick brief time out last week, this week, and next week to look at the biblical doctrine of adoption and uh, to be able to understand how that, the understanding of adoption has implications and ramifications not only for this life but for eternity. If you're not already there, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. And I wanted to remind you what biblical adoption is, and it's defined that sonship or daughtership, not as a natural lineage, but as an act of God that is bestowed upon certain individuals. We said we are not all the children of God, but as 1 John said, to as many as receive them. Those who have been united to Christ by faith are adopted into the family of God. And what we've done is we've wanted to peel back that inner workings, and as we saw in First Corinth, or excuse me, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, how before the foundations of the earth, our Heavenly Father, God Almighty, who we confess, chose uh, to adopt individuals into his family for the purpose of fellowship, but also for the purpose to make them holy and set them apart from this world. We saw the father of adoption, declaring holiness, bringing before the foundation a people into a purposeful, meaningful relationship with him. We see the means of adoption last week was the means of Jesus Christ at the cross. Uh, adoption was declared by the Father and accomplished by the Son. It was the work of Christ alone at the cross that made the decree of the Father uh, happen. He has redeemed us from our past, our rotten stump of a family tree, and engrafted us into His family, and now we have the privilege to be called sons and daughters of God. And the third thing we see that not only the Father decreed it and the Son accomplished it, but we are brought into the household of God. And it is we are justified, we are declared the children of God by the Almighty Judge of the universe. And each day He is 
teaching us and guiding us and loving us and correcting us and making us into his image. That we begin, though adopted, not natural sons and daughters, we begin to have the family resemblance with our Father in heaven and our brother, Jesus Christ. So with that understood, we move our attention this week to Galatians. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. There's only three uh, texts in the New Testament that speak of adoption. Ephesians 1, Galatians 4, and Romans chapter 8. And we'll be Romans next week. We're Galatians 4 this week. And I want to give you, because it's a one-time sermon, a little bit about how Galatians in context was, is that Paul was warning the Galatians to, uh, to be careful about attempting to win their salvation or attempting to earn their salvation. They were um, happy with Christ, but they were also beginning to embrace other things to add to Christ. And when we add anything to the work of Christ, we wreck it, we ruin it, and we deface our gracious Savior. Notice in chapter 3, across the page for some of you, chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by faith. Paul, so eloquently and a bit sarcastically at times in the book of Galatians, is emphasizing that justification, being declared righteous, being declared sons and daughters of God, being brought into relationship is not by what we do or what we add or what we augment to the gospel. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. By faith alone in Christ alone. Notice chapter 3, verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified by, um, before God by the law, for it is written in the book of Habakkuk, and Paul uh, brings this truth of God, the righteous shall live, how? By faith. And then he continues in verse 18, faith in what? For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Faith comes in believing the promises of God. Promise of God most brilliantly expressed in the gospel is that when Christ died for me, he took my punishment and he gave me his righteousness so I can stand before Almighty God. That is the promise of the gospel. And those who put their faith in that promise and not in what they do, what they are, their potential, but they put their faith in Christ and what he has done are called sons and daughters of God. With that being said, we move a little bit farther into the last few verses to set the context in verse 25. But now that your faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Paul is setting up in these first three chapters this adoption language, this sonship language that he's about to teach of us. And I want you to know this morning this truth, my big idea, if you will. You have been delivered from bondage to belonging. How? By adoption. You have been delivered from bondage to belonging 
by adoption. So let's dive deep into that. Um, I'm not uh, a good Baptist preacher this morning because I only have two points rather than three, but if you would give me much grace as we go through. Our first point will be freedom of adoption. Freedom of adoption in verses 1 through 5, and then the spirit of adoption in verses 6 and 7. The freedom of adoption and the spirit of adoption. Notice Galatians 4, verses 1 through 5. I mean the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, he's under guardians and managers until that date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to what? The elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, that great um, Advent narrative that we read at Christmas time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might, what? Receive adoption as sons and adoption as daughters. So we see this freedom from adoption that we have. In this first five verses, there are two groups of people. There are natural-born sons, and as we understood, Paul again is borrowing from an understanding in Roman culture that you have the pater familia, the, the father of the household who was in charge of everything within that, financially, uh, physically, even to the point that the life of his children themselves was all under the, um, the, uh, the authority of the father. And it says that the father would often have guardians and managers that would make sure and watch over the lives of their children. And it says here uh, uh, that for a certain amount of time, the heir is under guardians and, man uh, and, and managers. Their rights were limited, their powers were limited to the point where they were no different than the slaves in the household because the father himself is one that made the decisions. 1999, this is probably a very uh, a, a contemporary illustration of this understanding, is the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland um, were set to inherit in about a million pounds when they turned 18, and then um, 250,000 pounds after that. And their parents went to court and said they were too, um, too much... Uh, receiving too much when they were too young would lead them to vice and they would lead them to the pitfalls. So they put restrictions on the amount of money they were able to receive. Now, a million pounds is probably about 1.5 million. I'd be okay if somebody wanted to do that for me. But ultimately, you see, though they were heirs and heiresses of a great fortune and those rights, there were limitations that were put on them and restrictions that were put on them, even though they were heirs. And at the same time, the second group of people were slaves. And in the Roman world, the slaves were viewed as property. Defeated soldiers were sold into slavery rather than being killed. And they existed for work, and their destiny was in the hands of their owners and managers. And so Paul says the heirs and the slaves are no different while they are under age. They are both under guardians and managers in this somewhat a bondage. 
And what Paul is doing is applying this to the Galatians and that how the Galatians are under the bondage of sin. And then if you take that application and come fast forward to 2,000 years later, we as Christians or we as mankind as well are under various types of bondage despite our relationship. And he says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. And as you research that this is a very uh, ambiguous thing, what is these elementary principles of the world? Some uh, philosophers, it was the ABCs and the one, two, threes. Some said it was the basic elements of the universe, wind, uh, fire, and water, and earth. The, some others said the zodiac signs. Some also said religion that supersedes Christ that Paul was was mentioning but at the heart of Paul's teaching he was saying that all of us are under bondage of things that are contrary to the truth that is revealed in scripture concerning Christ rather than coming under the lordship of Christ we are held in bondage by various things each one of us knows the struggles we have Each one of us knows the things that Christ has won us over, whether it be bondage to sin or bondage to ideas or bondage to image. The Galatians were trying to perfect Christ by adding Jewish rituals in worship. Some people are bondage into physical consumption, uh, alcohol, drugs, various types of physical immorality. Some of us are in bondage to image. We are consumed with what other people think of us. Just go look at social media. Snapchat, or not Snapchat, snapshots of what we want the world to see and like and heart and and repost, whatever. We want people to think we're pretty. We want people to think we're smart. We want people to think we're crafty. We want people to think we're hardworking. And we want people to think we're cool. Some of us are in bondage to the possessions that we have, the things that we hold most dear, our homes, our cars, our electronics, the things that we buy, our computers. Some of us are in bondage into our family, uh, making things better for my children and my grandchildren. I want my children to have a better life than I did growing up. And we strive to that end, and we stop at nothing to be able to do that to our own detriment. Some of us are in bondage to politics. My, um, I believe that candidate A will make my life better. Reagan asked after the Carter years in his uh, his stump speech, is your life better today than it was four years ago? And it's a message and a question that is echoed at every politician. And depending on who you like and who you vote for, oh yes or oh no. And so we think that our politics can legislate a better life and a better community, and a better society. It can keep our kids safe at school. It can protect us from all these various things that danger. So we put our hopes in those things. Sometimes we are in bondage and we find our significant in our piety, in what we can do in our worship. Self-righteousness that we think can measure our righteousness compared to the righteousness of others. 
C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters, and for those of you who may not be familiar, C.S. Lewis wrote this book from the perspective of a senior demon writing to a junior demon how to deceive uh, and, and keep humans away from their enemy, which is God and Christ. And he says this, there are different types of Pharisees have been harvested, trodden, and fermented together to produce all its subtle flavor. Some were rules and rosaries, and other were drab clothes and long faces and petty abstinence from wine and cards or the theater. We see so often, and in light of Sunday school, this is a great conversation to have, is what are you putting your value and your worth into? And there, whatever you put your value into worth into, other than God, you find yourself in bondage to that thing. That is what you're serving. And trusting anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ alone will be bondage to your heart and bondage to your soul. And Paul is explaining this bondage that we have, these elementary principles of the world, these things that pull us away from the truth of our Maker. And then we see not the bondage of sin, but the deliverance that we have by our Father. Verse 4 and 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God is or was and is in working redemption. He is orchestrating this great plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation to be able to win his people away from their bondage that they have. We know so well about the bondage that the Lord is delivering us from and winning us over from. Bondage of man to sin is not beyond the degree of the Father nor the ability of the Father. Ephesians 1, 4 talks about, and we saw this last week, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself. While we were yet sinners, while we were in the midst of bondage and opposition and being enemies to God, God declared that He would adopt a people for Himself and win them out of their bondage and slavery to sin. J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican minister at the turn of the, the 20th century, wrote these words. And I don't have the quote, it's a lengthy, but I want to read it to you. When the time was right, God sent forth His Son. It was time perfectly suited for the introduction of the gospel. The whole civilized earth was at length governed by one master, the Roman Empire. There was nothing to prevent the preacher of a new faith from going from city to city and country to country. The princes and the priests of the non-Jewish world had weighed in the balances and they were found to be lacking. Egypt, in Assyria, in Babylon, in Persia, in Greece, and Rome had successfully proven that the world through its wisdom did not know God. Even with all their mighty conquerors and their eloquent poets and their accurate historians and their amazing architects and their deep philosophers, the kingdom of this world uh, were full of the darkness of idolatry. It was indeed due time for God to interpose from heaven and send down an almighty Savior. It was due time for Christ to be born. At the right time, 
God sent forth his Son. The first recorded words of Jesus that we have in the book of Mark 1.15, Jesus came saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent of your idolatry. Turn from those things that you hold in bondage and believe in the promise of the gospel. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as son. The answer to the bondage of sin is not to work harder, to be moral, to try more, and to legislate and get the right people in office. The right, the answer to bondage of sin was adoption into the family of God through Christ Jesus. Christ came at a specific time, in the fullness of time. It was according to the counsel and the purposes of the divine trinity, working in succession to accomplish redemption. He came in a specific way, born of a woman, the almighty word who had declared and spoke and the word that came into, into being. All things were created by him. That divine word became man to deliver a people from the household, into the household of God from the bondage of slavery. And he did it in perfect righteousness, born under the law. And he was the only one that was strong enough to carry the burden of mankind and fulfill the righteousness of God and to represent man on the cross. He did what no man was able to do, fulfill righteousness to love the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind, and to love his neighbor as himself. But his credentials and his accomplishment, he laid those rights aside. Why? To be able to deliver his people from their sin. The only one that was able to loosen the shackles that held us. As Wesley, in his great song, And Can It Be, mentions the slavery, and it says, um, He came into my prison. And he let my shackles free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. He wasn't bound by sin. He had overcome sin. He had fulfilled the righteousness of God, and he was able to deliver us from our bondage. Adoption was the God's answer to sin's bondage. But that deliverance came at a great price, a great personal cost to be able to make adoption happen. May 20th of 2012 was one of the hardest days of Denise and I's life, but it was probably the most important day of Crosby's life. Thousands of children each year are born into the bondage of a home where they're not loved and they're not cared for and they're not wanted. Parents who could care more about the next buzz than the next feeding uh, parents who wake up not to the sweet, or children who wake up to not to the sweet sound of mother calling their name, but their mother screaming and cursing at the man who lives in their house. I remember on those days when we were about to adopt a little girl. We got the phone call one late night. Denise's girlfriends rushed over. It was probably around 11 o'clock that night, and they laughed and they talked. One of our friends went up to the hospital incognito into the nursery to see the baby. Um, we rejoiced. We named her Bonnie. We got a phone call, and the social worker said, 
the mother has chosen to adopt, or to, to parent. And our dreams of adopting that little girl were crushed. I remember standing after church on a Sunday in the garage, tinkering, trying to avoid my thoughts and my emotions, and Denise came out and we talked and we cried, and I said, don't give up. It was gut-wrenching, it was excruciating, it was painful. But I said, we can't give up. There is a child out there that needs us. We have to keep going. We have to do that. Because of May 20th, Crosby's life has been radically different. He lives in our home. He eats at our table. He shares our name. I could have said I would be able to support life by giving money to an adoption agency. I could have changed my life, changed the life by being a voice for pro-life from cradle, from womb to grave. I could have changed a life by serving at a charity to help at-risk kids. But we chose to change Crosby's life by making us his son. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born under, under a woman, born of, of a woman, born under the law, and ultimately to be able to die. God didn't just uh, declare us innocent. He didn't just provide for our physical needs. He didn't simply grant us freedom. He made us a child in his family at great cost. The death of his only son. A Christian's life, for those of us who have put our faith in Christ alone, will forever be changed because God the Father freed us from the bondage of our sin and redeemed us from that sin of bondage by the death of His Son to call us His children. When we realize the bondage of our sin and the deliverance that our Father has given us, that has a profound impact on our life. Not just our path, not just something, oh, that's nice, I'm adopted, but it has profound implications that come. The first one is this, your life is freed from the bondage of your past. Sin is no longer your master. It holds no authority over you. Your past may explain why and how you got here, but it no longer rules you. It no longer defines you. It no longer limits what you're able to do. You're freed from the bondage of your past and the bondage of your sin. As Christians, we have been moved from the stench of the slave quarters to the lavish graces of the home of our Father. We have no longer have to root through the refuse of London looking for food and scraps to be able to satisfy that deep hunger. We now feast in the dining room at the table at Windsor Palace. Because God is your Father, He is the one who holds your present and He holds your future and He has delivered you from your past, your shame, your guilt. Stephen Curtis Chapman, when I was in high school, um, had a song called Remember Your Chains. And I always remember, I love Stephen Curtis Chapman uh, and deep, significant meetings, and he said this, Remember your chains. Remember the prisons that once held you before the love of God broke through. Remember the place you were without grace. When you see where you are now, remember your chains and remember your chains are gone. 
You are free from the bondage of sin, from the guilt, from the shame of your past because of the deliverance through Christ, because you belong to the household of God. And the second is, is you're freed from your past, but your future belongs to your Father. God's work is not done when, you're, when the adoption is declared. An adoptive parent works and strives and think and invests just as a natural-born parent does to be able to, to create and cultivate that child to grow. Packer says this, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this, throughout our life in this world and to all eternity beyond, he will constantly, he, the Father, will be constantly showing us in one way or another more and more of his love and thereby increasing our love to, to him continually. The prospect before the adopted child of God is eternal love. Amen? Brothers and sisters, if you have been united to Christ by faith, you have been adopted into the family of the Almighty God, and your loving Father, loving Heavenly Father loves you. He cherishes you. He disciplines you. He meets your needs. He comforts you, and He is making you more like Jesus each day. You have been delivered from the bondage to belonging by adoption. We see then that not only the salvation that has been accomplished and the redemption that has been accomplished through Christ in verses 1 through 5, but we see the spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption in verses 6 and 7. Notice in verse 6, the first part of the spirit acts as a witness. He acts as a witness in verse 6. And because you are sons... Your place is fixed by the declaration of the Father, accomplished by the Son, and is now guaranteed and sealed by the Spirit. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Father decrees adoption. The Son accomplishes adoption. The Spirit is a witness of adoption, a seal on our hearts, a deposit that the Father is coming to bring us. Just in verse 4, as God sent forth His Son, now the Father has sent the Spirit of the Son into your hearts. And this is a past tense aorist, and this is a fancy way of saying this, to emphasize the successful bestowal on the individuals of the Spirit of God. It is taken place. This is not something that is working out. It is a full deposit of the Spirit of God into the hearts of His children. Romans 8, which we'll look at next week, says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit, what? That we are the children of God. And how does that happen? Well, the Spirit deepens our understanding of what it means to be a child of God. The Spirit is working to transform us into the, into the image of God to make us more like Jesus each day. That family resemblance that begins because of the adoption. The Spirit is bringing forth fruit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. That's not a work of us. That is a work of the Spirit that's bringing those things in the life of His children. And it is a deposit. It is a deposit I know because the Spirit of God lives in me. When Christ returns, He will bring me into glory. 
I am not forgotten because the Spirit of God lives in me. But how do you recognize from these verses, verse 6, people who are my children and people who are other children? By name. For those of you who are moms and dads, you know when you go into Target or Walmart or wherever it was when your kids were little and you hear the name mom or you hear the name dad, you can differentiate Though it's the same word, you hear the voice of your child. And you know when you hear mommy and daddy and how they say it, they're in trouble or they're get, going to get in trouble or they're scared or they're excited. You know your name. The word daddy uh, in, in, is an Aramaic word. And it's the first words of a babbling child, and it is a term of endearment of grown children that they say all throughout their lives. There's a, this is a radically um, different understanding. In the Old Testament, there's no understanding of this in reverent endearment, reverent intimacy, because no place ever would, in the Old Testament would anybody refer to God, to Yahweh, as Abba, Daddy. But in the New Testament, this is a robust New Testament understanding that we are sons and daughters of the Almighty God and that we use Abba, a term of reverent intimacy, to, to uh, address our Heavenly Father. I want you to think through, because remember, in the first century, we think Jesus spoke what language? Hebrew, right? No, he probably did. He did. He could read it. But the everyday language was Aramaic. So when Jesus was praying... He said these words, Our Abba, our Abba who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when his heart was overwhelmed with grief and sorrow that we had come, Abba, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And then we see, as he's dying on the cross, in great anguish, he cries out, Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. This name, this relationship between, uh, th that God has with his children is deep and significant. It is reverent yet intimate. This is not some sentimental drivel. The spirit of, of God allows his children to call out with deep reverence and sweet intimacy to their Father in heaven in the midst of sorrow and grief and, com and confusion and joy. And their Father in heaven knows the voice and he hears them. The cry of a child of God is the cry of Abba. We have a Father who knows our name and when, despite the noise and the, the background, like an attentive parent who hears their name called and their child in trouble, our Heavenly Father knows when His people cry out, Abba. When we are lost in a world and we're scary, we can cry out to our Abba who takes us by the hand. 
when we are confused and scared, we have, can come to our Abba with strong arms who holds us and whose tender voice speaks truth and wisdom and it calms our fear in our hearts. When our hearts overflow with joy, we could run to our Abba and tell Him all about the treasures of His creation that we have and that we have discovered. Ocean Park, we are not alone in this world, though sometimes we feel we are. Though we may walk a a path without human companions at times as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff, our Heavenly Father, guides us. He knows our name. He knows our voice. And He tenderly and graciously leads us and guides us when life is hard and when life is pleasant. Not only is the Spirit of witness to us, but the Spirit also uh, testifies that we are heirs. Verse 7, you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Brothers and sisters, you who are in Christ, have put your faith in Christ, have been called out of bondage into a loving relationship with our Father, with a pater familias who is sovereign over all creation and sovereign over the household of God. We, have an, we were once heirs in bondage to sin in this world, and now in verse 7, we are heirs with freedom. We, when, where Christ is, there is freedom. The work of the Father sending His Son into the world to deliver us from our sin and the work of the Father sending the Spirit into our heart changes everything. We enjoy the benefits of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Ocean Park, in Christ, your status, your future, and your resources have radically changed because you are heirs of the King that one day we will be in his house eating at his table and we are no longer in bondage. We are free as the children of God. We are no longer fear the future. We have assurance of the safety and the wisdom and the strength of our Heavenly Father. We are no longer struggle alone. We have the comfort that the Father gives us through His Spirit. We are no longer stumble in confusion. We have the confidence of the wisdom of our Father. Just as when we were little boys and little girls and we didn't understand or we feared, but there was safety in the arms or by the side of a good parent. And though the world may be dark and swirling and confusing, we knew we were safe by our parents. We sing the song, um, I don't know the title, but No Longer Slaves, probably. But it sings, We Are No Longer Slaves to Fear. Why? The confession is, I am a child of God. When life is difficult and confusing and we don't understand what's happening and why it happened, we don't always get the answer why. But we get the presence of our Father who is good and who is working things for His glory. We belong to the Father of God, the, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth as we confessed in the creed this morning. Therefore, we have the privilege to go to the Father and ask what we need when we need it and the amount that we need. But the reality is we don't always ask for the right thing because we think we need something else. Just like your parents want, when you are a parent, your kid asks you, I'd like to only eat chocolate and cake 
and things like that and sugar-coated chocolate bombs for breakfast. And when you realize that's what they're asking because that's what they think they need. They love that stuff. But as a good parent, you break the bad news that that's not going to happen because your teeth will fall out and you'll weigh 4,000 pounds. It's not good for you. And our Heavenly Father, in a kind and gracious way, says, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I will give you what you need, when you need it, and the amount that we need. The implications of this is, are this, that the Spirit is at work in God's children. He is making in us and, and keeping us in His truth. So often we forget. We are a forgetful people. That's why Scripture continually reminds us what? Remember. We have it carved into our communion table because we are a forgetful people. We need reminders. We forget what our Father has done and how He's provided and how He's delivered in the path and we fret and we, our hair's on fire and we worry. The Spirit gives us faith and the Spirit gives us insurance and the Spirit gives us joy. The Spirit is working to make us look to God as our Father, to be secure in His love. Sometimes that means taking away the things that our security is in. This morning, we, again, we studied worship, and we find functional saviors. We find good idols. And you're like, there are no such thing as good idols. We know all the bad idols, the blatant sin that people often cling to, but often it's the good idols of church and family and, and other things that, d though very insidiously, distract us from ultimately from knowing God. We get um, soaked up in the gifts that we forget or ignore or overlook the giver. And the Spirit is working to make us act like royal children, to look like Christ, to love his family, and to bring honor into our family. And we have the promise of the gospel in Philippians 1, 6 that says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, and you can apply this, this adoption, this declaration of bringing his people into the family of God, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the day of Christ. Unlike myself, who does 80% of all my home improvement goals, I forget about things, I forget to write them down, that is not our Heavenly Father. He brings to completion what He starts in the best way, and it is a beautiful thing. The second implication is this, we are to seek God our Father and not spiritual experiences. We like to feel good. We, I'm I like to feel good. I don't like to feel sad and, and, and morose all the time. But often we seek the Holy Spirit like it's some good form of, of spiritual LSD. We want the feelings of relief and the spiritual ecstasy, and we miss the person of our Heavenly Father. As those who have the Spirit in them, the Spirit is guiding us to seek our pleasure not in experience and not in gifts, but in the giver of all good things, in the person of our Father. That we may be able to say with Paul, in, or not Paul, he was David, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand. In the presence of our Father are pleasures forevermore. The Spirit is our witness of our sonship, and it is guiding us to find our pleasure in God. 
not in his gifts, not in good things, not in his beautiful creation that's filled with amazing, beautiful, delicious, beautiful things, but to find our pleasure and our satisfaction in God. Brothers and sisters, you have been delivered from bondage to belonging by adoption. And I pray that as we consider this, we would... um, meditate on this and that this truth would affect how we live and it would transform us and how we think and how we are would affect how we live. I close with uh, J.I. Packer again, knowing God. Read the chapter on adoption. It is an amazing chapter. And he asks this, do I as a Christian understand myself? Do I know my real identity and my real destiny? Am I, then this is it, I am a child of God. God is my Father, heaven is my home, every day is one day nearer, my Savior is my brother, every Christian is my brother too. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are in Christ have been delivered from bondage to belonging by adoption. There are others here this morning, though, who do not know Christ. That they uh, and you may be still finding your significant and your value in giving worth to something other than Christ. You will never find the satisfaction that you desire because people will always fail you. Even the best of us will disappoint you and fail you to meet your expectations. No one can... um, live up to the value and the worth that only Christ can hold. I pray that you would trust him, that you would no longer try to find and explain away why you don't follow Christ, but you would put your trust in his work, that he has taken your sin and your punishment that you deserved, and he gives us his righteousness so that we can stand before God, not the base on our potential and what we have done and how charitable we have been and how moral we are and how, what who our family members are, but that we would trust in what Christ has done. And that when the Father looked at Christ on the cross, he saw your sin. And that day when you will stand before your maker, almighty judge of heaven and earth, who will judge the living and the dead, that you will say, not by what I have done, but by Jesus. I'm with Jesus. And that you will put your trust in that promise of the gospel that says those who trust in Christ are a part of the family of God. To as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children uh, and, and sons and daughters of the Father.